Machute Mate recognizes the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and any indigenous elders of other communities who may be listening today. We stand in solidarity in their struggle towards the colonization and land back. Buena mi gente, what is good? Looks like where the boys are back together, at least two-thirds of the boys are back together after uh, another plan. Like, we wouldn't be us if we didn't have all these unplanned hiatuses. Um, <laughs> but this one was, like, like, extra long. I think the last time we dropped something was maybe May or June or something like that. But um, we're here. Um, like I said, it's just going to be me and T from the normal group. But we have... Back by popular demands, our um, on the ground Australia correspondent, friend of the show, um, Rev Revolution. Title. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, thanks so much for having me on. If anyone doesn't know, I'm just a socialist activist um, and um, unionist in Australia. My name's Revan. Yeah. Um, old heads remember him when we talked about the um, I think it was the federal election that we had him on for. That's um, great. Yeah. But um, yeah, super relevant for on several several fronts to have him on. We'll definitely get to that. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's going to be us three, T, myself, and Rev. Um, this part, this is the part where I usually ask for your money, but like because we haven't been here, like don't even worry about that unless you actually want to um, slide over some some cheddar. We were not going to say no, but you know, you know how it is. Um, but yeah, I think before we get into it, because everything we're going to be talking about is obviously going to be very, very harrowing and very, very deep. Um, how are we doing? Like, do we have any peaks in our lives? Any highlights? T. I'm go just going to quote, I'm going to quote my favorite, um, Anglo-Saxon proverb, which is, um, I'm living the dream that, that, that's what I'm doing. Right. It's, it's. Is classic, you know, anytime, you know, the joke goes in the United States, you know, anytime, uh, you know, you ask a white dude, you know, how he's doing and he says, uh, living the dream, that man is contemplating driving his car into the <laughs> lake, man. That's just so, yeah, I'm living the dream. What about you, Leroy? Yeah, I mean, there's a f- couple of things there. Um, I have to echo exactly what you said. Work is work. Work's always going to be shit um, because we live in a uh, capitalist mode of production um alienation so forth and so on um that's normal um like i was telling y'all fellas off off camera offline um kind of a few ups and downs with my with with my son a couple of things are a couple of positives so he got into the special autism school that we wanted to get that he we wanted him to go to so that's great and on the flip side of that we received evidence of um not so great things happening to him by people who are meant to look after him and take care of him and um, be inclusive and take his needs into consideration. Um, I won't get into it too deeply, but um, definitely um, ableism is one of those things that like underpin our society. And it's very, very unfortunate um, made worse by the fact that he doesn't have the capacity to communicate exactly what happened to us. So, um, so we have to rely on these people 
to communicate for him. And when that doesn't happen, it makes the underlying violence even greater. Um, that's my way to tiptoe around that without getting too into it. Um, but yeah, but other than that, look, no real complaints. Um, but yeah, I'm just, just excited to do this. Reb, how about you, bro? Yeah, honestly, with everything that's been going on in the world, um, the the universe seems to have sent me a message and, you know, my, I have a couple of chronic conditions. I have like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. They're both autoimmune. And I've had a bit of a flare up um, at the same time, but all this stuff has been going on. So I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it pushing, you know, just trying to look after myself, eat well, do enough exercise, you know, stretch, all that kind of stuff to keep the joints limber and all that. Um, and I'm on the kind of on the mend. I've got a new medication now and all that. So hopefully as we, you know, as, as, as just said, it was a sign from the universe <laughs> first up, hopefully the, the back end of it is also another, another sign. And, um, these, these things that we're going to discuss all trend in the right direction as well. Yeah. 100%. But that's good to know that you're, um, on the way back. Cause Tiano, you, you, you deal with certain like issues or something like similar, but, um, which is, which is cute, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it rolling. Um, obviously, obviously we are first and foremost, a, I would say at base on a Latin American focused sort of, um, podcast. We talk about obviously linking everything to sort of a, within an international sort of framework, but um, within that more specifically like Latin America, because that's just, you know, where our background is, that's sort of the core where our approach to global issues and like our radicalization sort of begins with. Um, so we will hit on a couple of things that have been happening there, but today is going to be a little bit different um, in the spirit of maintaining that sort of internationalist framework. Um We'll be talking predominantly on the referendum that took place here in Australia last week, a couple of weeks ago, some like not too long ago. Um, we'll, if you haven't heard of that, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, but it's very prescient because it definitely links to the number one news piece on the planet right now, which is the conflict against um, Palestinians, the genocide against Palestinians. Um, both are very much a result of settler colonial violence, but we'll get into that um, as we go. Um, but like I said, we'll, we'll start with Latin America and obviously boys jump in with any thoughts and ideas that you have about these. Um, I think the one of the main ones that's happening in Latin America, I think one of the last stories we actually covered here was the was the um, election in Ecuador. There was the first rounds and then it was after the Correistas kind of like just ran through um, the congressional election. So Javier Correa, sort of the left wing uh, former president. Um, who was exiled or self-exiled from Ecuador, been living in Belgium. His movement was sort of underground for a while, but um, it's sort of seen this resurgence, especially in the face of all the bullshit going on with Lasso, who was the neoliberal Opus Dei-affiliated um, right-wing fascist president. He was kicked out, and as a result, there were elections. The Correista candidate won in the first round, so she went off to a runoff, and then they had the actual runoff last week. Um, and unfortunately, she lost, and the winner was a guy by the name of Daniel Roy Gilchrist Noboa Asin. This, this man is full-blooded Ecuadorian, and his middle names are Roy Gilchrist. Um, but what's uh, wild is that we tend to talk about, um, we talk about imperialism. There's the concept of a banana republic, and people tend to look at like Central America, like 
um, correctly as being these quote-unquote banana republics, but no one talks about Ecuador. Ecuador is actually the fifth biggest banana exporter in the world. Um, they 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 make up six percent of total production, and this guy who just won is the is the son of the owner of the guy who started the biggest exportation um, ex, uh, banana exporter company in in the country. Right, so this guy is filthy rich. Um, he's the heir to the Nabo Corporation. Again, like I said, he's one of the one of the biggest banana exporting companies in the country, where banana ex- exports makes up a large part of the economy. Um, he's also been implicated recently in the Panama Papers of having two offshore companies located in Panama. Um, it's this is Latin America being Latin America, right? So, like, whoa, 100%. wow. So when we see a glimmer of hope, capital just comes in and sort of like, nope, here it is. Um, I don't want to get too far into it because then we could be here all day talking about you know Latin America being Latin America, but that's that's who's going to be the next president of Ecuador. So not much change there. Um, his party though is ostensibly not as far right as Lasso, but it's all the same bullshit. Capital is capital, right? Still supported by Global North Capital. Um, also, um, Javier Millet is doing his thing down in Argentina. Rev, oh, have you ever heard awful. of the guy named Javier Millet? He's, I have been keeping up with this, and yeah. it, it's truly horrifying. To me, it's just proof that it, nothing matters anymore. Like no. what you say your policies are don't matter in liberal democratic elections anymore. People just vote off grievance and, and vibes. 1,000%. And this guy is a grievance vibes candidate. I mean, he's he's cut from the same cloth as a Donald Trump, as a Boris Johnson, as a uh, Bolsonaro, these kind of like sort of almost like cartoon characters, these kind of absurd figures, this sort of like, <laughs> you know, uh, just a, a kind of a ridiculous clown, but a, a murderous clown, right? It's, yeah. it's fucking Pennywise. For a vicious Pitt, clown. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, 100%. And like for those of you, I mean, old heads will know because we've talked about him, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with who he is, I think T's explanation, this description is perfect. This man is a fucking cartoon character. He's a clown um, to the point where he's he's basically, you take the worst online Reddit account that you can find that's just posting like like meme lord, edge lord type of person, and this is who it is. Like he started his own like sort of quote unquote libertarian party, and almost immediately like all the most a lot of the women who were part of this party came out and like oh like you know they're actually sexist and blah 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 blah. It's like this is what their entire personalities are are built built around. So, just a couple of the policies that he ostensibly is running on is um, it's a lot of liberalization of the, of the naturally of of the economy. So one of the big things is dollarization. So trying to get like the economy under control. And he reckons that dollarization is going to help towards that. Um, and privatizing basically as much as he can, um, specifically health and education. He's also a effectively a genocide um, den- denier as well. Because for those of you who aren't aware, like in the 70s, there's a massive dictatorship and like sort of in the same vein as what happened in Chile with Pinochet. Same thing, like people being disappeared, people being thrown out of airplanes. Like you have the mothers of the, um, not the mothers of the revolution, the mothers of the the plaza. I, I forget what the name is. Basically, these a massive group of mothers of people who are disappeared. Um, and basically, he's lowballing the numbers. He goes, oh, they say it's this number, but it's actually this number. But he's also adding like, but at the end of the day, a lot of those people were communists. So like, it doesn't matter that they're all dead. Um, that type of guy. And that type of guy is on his way to actually being elected. 
Um, so like Rev said, nothing really matters. You could say, you know, pee pee poo poo, and it's it's gonna it's gonna resonate with somebody, and it's gonna go a long way. Well, you know, here's the thing though, like if. <laughs> If people had been presented, you know, most of the labor and like Democrat parties of the Western world, right, since the late 70s, 80s went in a neoliberal direction, right? They, they inaugurated it in many ways, right? Or they helped confirm and kind of like establish it, let's say like the UK, right? You know, what did Margaret Thatcher say? Her greatest accomplishment was uh, Tony Blair, right? Um, so people have been presented with these like the false party. Right. Right. So people mind. have been presented with these false, <laughs> with these false choices. So they're going to vote on the infliction of pain, right? They're going to vote. Okay. So I don't believe, they don't believe the government's going to help them. They don't believe that they don't believe in communities. They don't believe in their class. They don't believe in anything. Right. But what they do believe in is if I can inflict misery on people I don't like, right? So they vote based, as you said, on grievance, right? And this is just, this is what happens when there are no real choices, you know, in among establishment parties, right? Now, I'm not excusing the kind of racism and the white supremacist perspective there, right? But I, you know, <laughs> not everybody who voted for, you know, like, you know, name any kind of famed, like, you know, center left president or prime minister or whatever, their entire coalition was not all saints, right? There, you know, look at FDR in the United States, right? A large chunk of his coalition were racist from the the US South, right? So I'm not trying to excuse that perspective, but it's like if if you don't give people the opportunity to choose based on their class interest, well, they're going to choose based on their worst impulses, not their greatest aspirations and hopes, but their worst impulses and their despair. No, 100%. I think you're spot on because a lot of it, um, we're all victims of alienation because that's a natural byproduct of a capitalist system. But what happens is instead of sort of coalescing that alienation and into some sort of solidarity that we're all in this together, we're all feeling this, let's make it better for all of us, that goes the other way. And it's definitely... Um, People are motivated to go in that direction, go towards like, oh, you feel alienated. Then you need to, then you need to choose. You need to elect. You need to act in your own self-interest because that's the only way to get get out of this. So, um, and we're sort of speed running into that. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I would say, yeah, go ahead before we go. In terms of in terms of causes of hope, though, I don't think if he does get elected, I think he's going to run into the same problem that a lot of guys have got. Like, actually, center left politicians have run into where the the congress is going to be a problem right i don't think that you know he'll do damage no doubt um if he gets elected but i think this time the congress is going to be a good thing in terms of uh putting a check on him i i truly believe that um i just don't think someone who lacks because his party is new right i don't think a party that doesn't have the kind of like sort of the patronage networks that older, more established parties have that they can mobilize a mass of people. Like this will be, if he wins, it's, it'll be a spite vote. It'll be like Trump in, in 2016. You know, it'll be a spite vote um, yeah. versus like necessarily a vote based on political organization. Maybe I'm being a little too, maybe I'm being naive or too hopeful. I don't know. But I tend to think, my my suspicion is that you know, not to jump into predictions, but my suspicion is that the Congress will keep him in check for a while. 
Um, now, again, he'll still do a lot of damage, um, but I think there is hope to, th- you know, in that maybe some of his worst impulses could potentially be restrained. Hopefully. Yeah, inshallah. But um, I think moving on to more positive about the out of Latin America has been Gustavo Petro, who, upon everything popping off in Palestine, immediately showed his solidarity with the Palestinian people. And like, Rev, this is something I was I was explaining to you as well. Like here on the pod, we constantly called Colombia basically the 51st state or like the Israel of Latin America, just because the way how how it functioned like in the real world in terms of its relation to the United States, the fact that like all the Colombian death squads, a lot of them were trained by Israelis or using Israeli techniques and, and, and technology and all of that. So to have someone come out and say, we are showing our undying solidarity with the Palestinian people, expelling the Israeli ambassador, opening an embassy in, 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 in Rafa to get aid there. This is, and what's wild, I th- I think, I'm not sure, but I think, T, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we, we're we obviously hopeful about a Petro uh, presidency, but we kind of were cautious, like, oh, he'll probably be like a Bernie of Columbia, whatever. And this man has just, like, you know what I mean? Well, he's been a true statesman, you know? Yeah. He's, he's, not, he's not taking the, you know, he's been very brave. I mean, he was brave to even, like, <laughs> to be a public activist, you know, for many, many years, uh, Colombia was one of the most dangerous countries for trade union organizers. I'm not even not even like socialist or communist organizers. Just like union organizers were ending up dead pretty regularly. Still same, do, same, of course. Same thing though, right? Unionists, communists, it's all the same thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but he's been. I mean, it's it's kind of astonishing. He's been a true statesman in this whole thing. Like he hasn't he hasn't equivocated. You know, he's he's been. You know, obviously. It's been interesting to see the breakdown of responses between different like different countries. So the countries obviously that are like more Bolivarian, shall we say, have been a lot stronger on this issue yeah. uh, on 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 the on the current war, um, the massacres, frankly, um, versus like the l- other countries that like the Argentine uh, officials were were a little bit were a little more less less forthright than say Bolivia, for example. Um, I think it's, he's really demonstrated that, you know, he is willing to kind of put his neck on the line on the foreign policy side, you know, cause it's very easy to be progressive on the domestic side of things and then just be a fucking like bloodthirsty war hawk yeah. when it comes to foreign policy. Right. We've seen a lot of politicians in the United States, Bernie Sanders, for example, is one of them. Mm. Uh, Fetterman, Senator Fetterman from uh, Pennsylvania. People who are like, you know, considered heroes of, of you know, maybe not the whole left, but like progressives especially, um, really kind of like showing who they are. Now with Sanders, I'm a little more, uh, a, 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 I feel a little less harsh about it simply because he's always had these positions, you know, Israel, Palestine was kind of like one of it always has been kind of a weak point for him. Um, Fetterman, honestly, the shock at Fetterman is, is a little funny to me because he's always been this way too. But I, I, I guess I, it makes more sense considering Bernie's generation too. his like 
age-wise uh, to have this position. He, you know, he has the kind of traditional like 1960s style, like the you know, like kibbutznik sort of like perspective of like what Israel could have been, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm a little more understanding, a little bit. Again, the bar is in the fucking dirt. Um, but like other progressive politicians have been much less so. Now at the same time, there have been really good ones too. Um, obviously, Rashida Tlaib, uh, for example, has been like fucking. God, I hope she has like twenty fucking armed guards around her, like twenty four seven, because God be with her for real. Yeah, just from the outside, but as a keen observer of U.S. politics, like I really think that it's that the Fetterman, the surprise around his position and all that, it, it just to me, it seems like there's a terminal problem in the U.S. left where they continuously mobilize around people like Fetterman and Brandon Johnson in Chicago, so on and so forth, and endlessly end up disappointed and having to disavow their comments of electeds and all this sort of thing with no perspective of how to escape that vicious cycle when a crisis like this happens. And it's just, I don't like, I'm not saying that to be rude or snipe. I'm saying it because it's a huge crisis for the left internationally that the US left is in this position and hasn't been able to split from these forces that will compromise like unequivocally as soon as an existential crisis for something like US imperialism or capitalism actually arises as it has done in the past couple of weeks. One thousand percent. I mean, justified, justified comments, and you know, not to dwell too much on this. It's you know, people are chasing the the Bernie high is really what it comes down to. You know, we did have a lot of hope, and you know, a lot of people like, you know, you hear, you know, people were you know going out canvassing in like minus five weather, you know to 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 try you know because it was so you know it was it was a moment right and so I, I think a lot of folks are definitely trying to chase that bernie high and so looking for uh <laughs> looking for a savior when we should you know look into our own hearts and as a you know as not to get cliche but as a class really free ourselves rather than waiting for someone to come in and free us right um but no i mean you're justified in those comments rev for real 1000 percent um but yeah we'll I'm, I'm sure eventually we'll circle back to that in this conversation but we'll keep the ball rolling here um i think we'll start off with the referendum just so we can sort of dedicate more time at the end to palestine because that's obviously the big issue um not that not that the referendum and what it implies isn't a big issue um but but y'all know what i'm trying to say here um so for those of you who aren't aware, a couple of weeks ago, we had a referendum here in Australia. Um, I'll let Rev sort of break it down for you. But it was, I like I said, it's one of those things that should have been a layup, should have passed easily. And liberals being liberals, it did not. Rev. Totally. So just to give people some background, in Australia uh, at the last federal election, the Labour Party were elected. And they were elected on a mandate of significant change, I think, a big break from one of the most right-wing and dysfunctional governments in Australian history, the previous Scott Morrison-led Liberal Party. Um, And the main way that people wanted to see this change was social issues, actually, climate change, racial justice, um, and and especially sexism, which has been really lost, but that was an obscenely um, sexist and homophobic um, 
uh, government and Labour ostensibly is different, right? So people were voting for change um, and for hope. And one of the main things that Anthony Albanese, the now Labour Prime Minister of the country, said in his victory speech was he wanted to create this voice to parliament, which is what the referendum that we just voted on on October 14th was all about. And what the voice represents is a way to kind of symbolically recognize the indigenous people of Australia within the constitution and establish essentially an advisory body without effective lawmaking power or anything like that, but a body independent of parliament comprised of indigenous people themselves to advise, to issue recommendations about how do we achieve better policy results for education or healthcare or you know, getting our children out of prison, these kind of very pressing issues that still exist massively today. Um, and yeah, essentially, you know, we can go kind of deep on how it failed, but it failed massively. Uh, the Labour campaign around it was always completely uh, inept. They made so many mistakes and it crashed and burned. More than 60% of Australians voted against what is effectively a very mild and in fact conservative proposal for addressing the harm that Indigenous people have historically faced and continue to face. So it's a huge win for the forces of reaction, especially racism in Australia. And it's it's a very, very dark turn, I think, um, though it was entirely predictable. So I'm sure we'll go through that. No, 100%. And I think... Um we can't overemphasize the fact the how bad the yes campaign was so like just to make it very i guess to like to bring it down it was basically a campaign run on vibes right it was it's it was basically a campaign um that was for sort of an ep- educated upper middle class sort of community or demographic that will look at this and like oh, duh, you know, we should recognize our indigenous folks and blah, 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 blah. So it was basically a campaign run vibes, but there was no attempt to link it to workers, to a multicultural sort of demographic as well. Because I live I live in the northern suburbs of, of, of Melbourne, which is predominantly immigrant, predominantly working class, predominantly English being a very, very far second, third language for a lot of people. I didn't see a single person come here to talk to anybody. This is a campaign that could have easily, labor could have come and easily connected that to our own strife and oppression here. Talking about like, you know, what your fellow Iraqis, what your fellow Afghans, what your fellow whatever have to endure to be in this country. We're working for you. We're linking the struggle to indigenous people because if they, once the indigenous people win, that's a win for you as well. Like baseline, none of that. So this was this was an extension of the settler colonial white Australia policy. I, I, I reckon. I don't know if you agree with that, but I see you nodding. So, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I think of all the strategic mistakes that the Yes campaign made, that was the most significant one. The inability to actually devise a concrete measure in the first instance to address indigenous oppression, and the inability to, you know, as you said, create a sense of common purpose behind that measure, which would not have been very hard. And 
you know, the fact is that a lot of the people who voted against this measure in areas like yours, Leroy, is that, you know, they are aware that Australia is a very racist country. They are aware that people are racially uh, oppressed on a systematic basis in this country. Um, So the fact that they could vote against this kind of measure in the end, um, although, you know, to, to be to be to be sure, young people who speak a second language at home other than yeah. English were the most likely the whole time to actually engage with the Yes campaign's material, um, and that's from Redbridge, which is one of the most credible pollsters here. Um, so you can see that the younger generation of you know migrants who have come to Australia over previous decades were very very uh, interested in actually advancing this anti-racist cause, right? Um, So it wouldn't have been that hard for those areas to actually come out in large support of the measure if if a proper campaign was run. Go ahead. No, absolutely, 100%. And I think one of the winning messages for the no campaign, because obviously we know the it was all based on, it was, I guess to, to go back a little bit, like, I think you could split the no vote into two camps. So there's obviously the, the racist no vote and then the sort of more, the sort of more radical no vote, which is you could understand the, the grievances there um, because it's it'll still legitimize the sort of colonial government, blah, blah, blah. There's no treaties and stuff like that. Um, but with the racist no campaign, it was basically their, their winning message was that like, oh, you don't know if you don't know what it's about, then just vote now. And it was a winning message because no one knew what it was about. Like Labor did a very poor job at actually putting out that message and putting out information, putting out details of what it actually actually did. So like people like you and I, we understood what it was, but the average person here would know less about what it, what it's about than they would know about, say, a, a, a normal general election. God, do the fucking Democrats run the Labor Party down there? Good Lord, this is like yes. Democrat brain shit, like straight up. And so you're saying it's it wasn't even like a, a lawmaking body, like it wasn't even like devolution of powers or autonomy or anything like or home rule or anything like it was literally just like a commission essentially to study the issue, and and That's that, right. yeah. So God. yes, yeah. So essentially, it's the voice itself, the advisory body. The first thing to say is that there have been countless Indigenous advisory bodies, both at regional and federal level throughout history. And as you know, one of the kind of more radical left-wing um, Indigenous activists in the country pointed out, they've all achieved nothing and been wiped away by um, you know conservative reaction eventually. Um, so the idea was if we insert it via referendum, which is how you institute change to the constitution, it won't be able to be removed by previous the kind of subsequent governments and therefore it would have a more lasting impact and a higher likelihood of actually delivering a policymaking shift uh, on Indigenous issues. Um, and I think, yeah, the main reason why it failed is, um, as Leroy pointed out, like the no vote effectively coalesced around two camps that unfortunately had, you know, a lot of overlap in the sense that um, the kind of racist no campaign, which was highly coordinated and funded obviously by, you know, large sections of reactionary capital and and effectively run by the hard right, um, they knew that a lot of 
the way that they would need to peel people off from such a conservative and kind of harmless, benign measure would be to institute tons of disinformation and actually kind of prey on people who do care about Indigenous oppression and racism and want to achieve concrete, practical results. So one of the main arguments that they actually ran out there would be that the voice itself would divide Australia by race, uh, not, you know, actually doing anything to address racism, and that um, Indigenous Australians themselves don't want or need the voice. And they did that just like the Democrats do, T, by rolling out black faces who are willing to actually say things that are so far beyond mainstream discourse, that are willing to say the things that the white racist politicians are not able to say. And I'll give you one example. There's an Indigenous country Liberal Party senator, Jacinta Price. She became the star. She became the star of this reactionary racist no campaign. And one of the things she said at the National Press Club was, colonization has had no negative impacts on Indigenous Australians. In fact, it's been positive because now they have enough food to go around. That's that's what she said. God. See, that's shit that like colonizer racists say. But obviously they don't want to say it because they don't want to seem racist, but they have the black face saying it, then well, well, look. And I think as well, it, the rest of that quote, or like later on in that same speech, uh, someone asked if um Oh, no, I think she followed that up with saying, like, oh, if colonization had an effect on us, it also affected, like, the the convicts back in the day or whatever. And you can make an argument that colonization did affect because it still perpetuated the carceral state. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, there is a, an argument there to say, yes, like, it affected them as well. Um, but, see, this is the bullshit we're dealing with here in supposed social democratic Medicare-having Australia, man. I was about to say, man, I, I, you know, instead of, is it like Democrats running the Labour Party? Is is all of Australia run by American Southerners or something? Like, this is some like shit. This is, this is like some Virginia fucking like South Carolina fucking logic right here. Like, God, wow. That's truly amazing. And I figure, um, Just to draw the connection even closer to that you're making, like some of the comments that came out, and this is a point that I made in a piece that I wrote for my own Substack. Um, the kind of previous prime ministers of the Liberal Party um, in modern times, Tony Abbott and before him, John Howard, are both extreme racists to the level of eugenics. Uh, I'm, I'm not being controversial in saying that. Um, they stated during this campaign that the Northern Territory where a high amount of Indigenous people live is a failed state. This is obviously rhetoric that you would see coming out of American writists uh, as well. And, you know, a controversial anti-voice activist named Gary Johns also said that Indigenous people should all be blood tested uh, in order to verify their claims that they're actually Indigenous uh, and therefore, you know, supposed entitlements that they receive from the welfare state, which is woefully inadequate, as as Leroy was pointing out. Yeah. Thoughts, T? <laughs> I, I, so, like I oh, see, I see, I see your face of bewilderment because in the U.S., when I talk to like like well-meaning sort of left-leaning liberals or even socialists, oh man, you know, you have um, Medicare for all. I mean, what's it like? Or like Hex, which is like the study now, pay later type of thing. The 
quote unquote free tertiary education, which is not anyway, you know what I'm saying. Um I tell you if strict if control, this is the shit we're still dealing with. I tell you what, if there's one country like outside of the United States, like in the uh Anglosphere, I guess, that makes the most sense to me, that feels the most relatable as someone who lives in like the American South. It's fucking Australia, man. Like, just like some of the shit I hear. Like, I I, I remember John Howard and, and Tony Abbott and those, those guys. Um, I remember Howard, especially from the Bush years, right? He was he was um, he was Cowboy George's uh, Australian BFF. Um, I uh, it, it's interesting though, like how how the mechanisms of power and class oppression and white supremacy that the one of their results is to create political cultures that are oddly relatable. They might not be the same, but to paraphrase, you know, the Mark Twain line, they certainly rhyme, right? Um and so like the things that you're describing these statements from these politicians, you know, the use of the the use of identity as a shield to advance reactionary ends, it is very familiar, you know, to me here in the United States, very familiar. And I think another thing to point out uh, is that, you know, this is coming off the back of what we call invasion day rallies in this so-called Australia, truly massifying over the past 10 years. And those are organized by radical indigenous activists. And they would have started out, you know, relatively small compared to where they are today. But now, essentially, if you're if you're a decent person in Australia, which still is a lot of people, we're talking millions of people, right? You attend that rally on the Federation Day of Australia, the 26th of January, because you want to say you don't approve. In fact, you oppose the colonialist, racist nationalism that underpins celebrating a day that for Indigenous people represents invasion, colonization, genocide, cultural theft and vandalism of a scale that is unimaginable, right? So um, these have truly massified and Black Lives Matter 2020, just like around the world, had reverberations locally in Australia. Um, There were massive protests that defied bans um, and police intimidation uh, and media kind of uh, slander as well um, in Melbourne, especially where Leroy and I are based. Um, And as a result, um, polls showed that actually the number of Australians who viewed racism as a very big or fairly big problem in the country spiked from just 40% to 60%, which is an interesting number because the voice proposal itself initially had over 60% support in polling before the Labour Party and the Yes campaign whittled it away by constantly undermining it and by targeting their campaigning towards conservative blocks of society that were never going to vote for the proposal. And and like Leroy and I said earlier, not actually engineering a campaign that spoke to the broader masses who would have got behind something about this if they were properly incentivized and educated uh, about why they should do that, right? So it's a total capitulation of anti-racist kind of liberalism, liberal anti-racism in the country. I think... The, the main headline of my piece was that it's over in Australia because there's there's no way that that kind of liberal anti-racist project can pick itself up from here. So we need something better and we need something completely new to take the struggle forward. 
No, God, no. I hate to be an ugly American and to compare everything in American, but this is that's so Democrat brained, like to to try to like like uh, appeal to like people who will never support you. God, these people, they all. Oh my God, there's an international, and it's it's the dumbass liberal international. God. And the thing is, like, um, one thing we need to emphasize as well, like, this is coming off the heels of basically labor being empowered every single state, having a massive mandate federally as well. So the Labor Party controls every facet of government in Australia. This was their pet project. This was their baby. And it was still lost. You know what I mean? And this is, I think this is what we're trying to say when, like, it was woefully ineffective. It was was supposed to be a layup. And it, they ran a campaign based on vibes because they're like, oh, you know, we've come this far. It's going to win. It's just like... I don't know, like, like you, again, going back to the Democrats, like seeing Trump being like the Republican nominee. Oh, you know, we're going to win because, you know, look at this guy. We have all the vibes, you know, the populated Barack Obama and blah, 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 blah. It's 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 all the same bullshit, man. Reminds me of the Brexit vote or the original uh, the referendum in Colombia over the FARC peace deal. Like all these votes were like the the ostensible good guys. Um were so smug and so arrogant and so sure of themselves and sure of their victory that they didn't fucking really, they didn't do the work, right? They didn't really try. Um, is this, so this referendum happened, what, you said a couple weeks ago or? October 14th was the vote. October 14th. Yeah. So, so we're, we could go today. Okay, so it's gonna, it's still gonna be, some time i imagine to see the you know kind of the effects of this i imagine well interestingly enough the liberal party in queensland has now at the state level from opposition withdrawn their support for a state level treaty process with the queensland indigenous community which means that labor the queensland government which earlier this year suspended its human rights act not once but twice suspended its human rights act solely to ensure that more Indigenous children could be incarcerated in adult prisons where torture and abuse of detainees is the rule and not an aberration in order to actually bow to a right-wing, you know, crime is running a month campaign ahead of the election. You know, they've actually done that. And now their opponents from the Liberal Party have withdrawn their support for the treaty process, so they can't do that at the state level either. So there are already consequences and reverberations. It has massively emboldened the right to fight on an extremely racist uh, program. And at the federal level, we'll talk about it as well. But yeah, go ahead, Leroy. No, 100%. I think that goes back to um, something that you said, Rev, about how the racist no campaign and the more radical no campaign overlap. It overlapped over that promise of a treaty. So like the radical indigenous no vote was like, oh, we don't even have a treaty. So what are we doing here? Right? So what the racist said it goes, oh, look, after that, you know, we come together, we'll work through a treaty or something. Did not That's happen. Right. We're one, of the, exactly. one, of the, one of the other kind of right wing identity politics stooges that was deployed by the racist no campaign's name is Warren Mundine. Yeah. And he came out during the campaign and said, you know, I think a treaty is a better way forward. And then he was effectively disappeared by the racist no campaign because the rest of the infrastructure wouldn't support that kind yeah. of demand. Right. Um, so you can see how they have effectively marginalized themselves by yeah. lining up with the far right. Um, it's, it's really terrible. 
Yeah. And I think the last point I'll make before we move on to um, Palestine, we keep talking about treaty. And like, obviously, for those of us in the United States who grew up there, we understand that like the U.S. government made all these treaties with the Native Americans that were effectively broken, that were effectively like useless, that made no difference. But at the very least, that that sort of presumption of caring existed, that doesn't even exist in Australia. You know what I mean? Like that base level, like, oh, you know, sort of throwing you a bone, even if it's on paper, does not even exist in Australia. So, yes. So, so they don't, so, so uh, indigenous people in Australia do not have the same level of uh, home rule that say indigenous people in the United States do? It's not close. Like, it's not close. Like, Australia is by far, as far as, like, the Western settler colonies like North America, Canada, so on, right? By far the most reactionary and backward in this respect. Yeah. And it's a huge insult and a huge setback for the Indigenous movement in this country that a moment that should have seen some level of progress with this Labour government, as we've been talking about, has resulted not just in no progress, but in a huge slide further back to the past, to the days of Tony Abbott and John Howard, as I was saying before, right? Where they're pretending that everything about Indigenous rights and stopping Indigenous oppression is a land grab and theft by greedy Black people who just want to take away your backyard, you good tax-paying white person citizen. Yeah. And like... Yeah. And again, just my last point is on that point, like in Canada, like they're, con- they're they're constantly finding like graveyards of mass graves of indigenous children. And that's a marginally better situation for indigenous people than it is here in Australia. Like having gone through the, the American, the U.S. education system and knowing our history of, of indigenous people and how atrocious and how demonic it 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 has been and continues to be it's still marginally better than what it's been here in Australia. That's astonishing. That is astonishing to me. Wow. 100%. But um, to keep the ball rolling on indigenous people and sort of colonialism, fellas, Palestine, what's, and it's, and it's, it's very interesting because we have T, we understand your um, religious proclivities and obviously Rev, you're a a, a devout Muslim. Why would Hamas yeah. do this, bro? Like, what can you please disavow your fellow? <laughs> well, here, man. Yeah. If we want to start by talking about October 7, you know, yeah. I think I think it is important to actually talk about what happened. Right. Um, this is no surprise. Gaza has been under siege for 17 years and Hamas has been propped up intentionally um, at the expense of you know, secular or left-wing Palestinian political forces like Fatah or the, yeah. you know, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine over many years um, by Israel and, and the United States. And in their place, Hamas, which is an Islamist movement, um, but still a very popular movement with deep roots in Gaza, um, has effectively been the hegemon there. Um, And, you know, they have been warning for a long time that the status quo of the siege and the occupation uh, is is not going to hold and they would launch these kind of attacks on Israel to, you know, ostensibly 
you know, actually throw up some questions about how the status quo was unsustainable and wouldn't be cost-free for Netanyahu and the occupation, which is something that was a key plank of Netanyahu's personal kind of political project. So, yeah, I think that was the aim of Hamas. And I think what we've all seen, uh, surprisingly, was the total unreadiness and disarray of the Israeli occupation forces surrounding Gaza that enabled what, honestly, with 1,500 fighters, was quite a large operation for an organization like Hamas, their their armed kind of wing. Um, But at the end of the day, 1,500 Hamas fighters breaking out of an open-air concentration camp, the most heavily surveilled place on earth with the most high-tech military, um, you know, surrounding it, still should not have been anywhere near as, in inverted commas, successful uh, as it was, capturing so many hostages, completely eliminating Israeli military outposts on the outside of Gaza, like literally destroying, you know, the the IOF in combat, head-on combat. Uh, and I think that is kind of like the the surprise here. The fact that it was so successful, they were able to abduct that many hostages, which obviously they plan to use in a kind of prisoner exchange. Um, and they've stated as much of all the thousands of Palestinians who are in administrative detention um, in, in Israeli prisons. Uh, and that has been stonewalled by Israel and the United States as well. So we're now in this kind of, you know, long war, um, and we'll go through that. But yeah, I just thought that was kind of what they were aiming to do. I think it's interesting too, you know, because there were rumors, um, or you know, apparently there were rumors of this assault of or this 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 uh, you know a, a Hamas attack for a, a few days, and there's the story that the Egyptian government, uh, the Egyptian intelligence services, warned the Israeli state. Uh, that this was coming. And then there's also rumors that Netanyahu knew and kind of assumed that would be like any other kind of rocket attack that the, you know, the Iron Dome bought and paid for by U.S. <laughs> US dollars uh, would simply block it and that he would be able to use it to kind of shore up his own position in Israel. Because again, let us not forget that up until this, for the last like year or two, Israeli society has been very, just been, constant protests and opposition division within their within even the Israeli ruling class right where you had different factions blaming each other for different things um I don't know how credible any of this is honestly about like if you know who knew what or when and where um but I think you're right that the, the scale of it probably did genuinely shock everyone including uh the Israelis well especially the Israelis but yeah, the fact of the matter is they, they had no idea that Hamas was capable of this kind of attack on the ground, as well as, you know, the kind of customary rocket fire that they engage right. in that is by and large, you know, blocked by the Iron Dome, as you said. So I, I think they did have intelligence that pointed to some sort of attack happening. And I think you're right that they probably just expected the rockets, you know what I mean? Um, and to be able to just bomb a few targets killing hundreds of Palestinian civilians and then claim that, you know, they've eliminated the capability of Hamas to actually continue launching those rockets, right? Um, 
But I think what actually happened wasn't kind of like a cynical calculation on behalf of Netanyahu to allow this attack to take place. Because if that was true, I think they could have gotten away with it without losing so comprehensively, mm. militarily, head on with Hamas fighters the way that they did, which has caused a huge humiliation. And I think one thing that people don't actually understand is that this exposes Israel in the region because Israel has always been seen as the strongest military in the Middle East. Certainly it is the most advanced. Certainly it has nuclear weapons and the backing of the world's largest superpower, the entire West and, you know, NATO, you know, the largest and most, you know, kind of dangerous military organizations on earth, right? So um, they are fundamentally very powerful, but I think this kind of showed an atrophy of the military capability that Israel has demonstrated in previous wars, including its invasion in Lebanon. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just actually, I was just going to say that exactly when Hezbollah rolled them. Um, I, I, I kind of assumed that people would have realized, because like, I know... <laughs> Left wingers and and people you know in the Palestinian solidarity movement definitely remember when we all remember how Hezbollah rolled them right. I guess everybody decided either to intentionally forget it or legitimately, I guess, did not realize that the you know the kind of fast mobile light infantry of a guerrilla organization like Hezbollah or or Hamas, it's gonna like you know, with, with all the military might, right. It doesn't matter if you have a persistent people who just, who refuse to fucking lay down. Right. And it doesn't matter whether it is a, you know, a rice farmer in Vietnam or it's a, you know, olive farmer in Gaza. Right. You know, Sherman, with this, with fishermen, you know, if you have this, if you are, you know, if you've been put up against a wall, if you have no hope, you, you, you do not think there's going to be a political solution, as you said, Rev. We you've should. Been this should be, of it. You've been starved of it. You've been denied it. Yeah. Bingo. It's it's inevitable. Yeah, one hundred percent. And like that's one thing I always come back to that you have a lot of liberals that like you know. Oh, this this is terrible to happen to Palestinians, but you know, Hamas, there should have been like a peaceful way. Like they tried that. Like when was it? 2017 yes. when the march to the sea and peacefully, like students, children, peacefully marching, you know, for their rights, being shot by Israeli snipers. You know what I mean? All that bullshit. And it comes back to again talking about liberals. For a lot of liberals, a lot of well-meaning liberals, everything is a set of policy decisions, right? It's like we can call it like the West Wingification of like liberal politics you know what i mean where everything and to quote Césaire as well like for liberals everything's sort of an aberration everything's sort of abstract so like colonialism is an abstract set of policy decisions whereas the people who are being colonized this is a material reality which is why you have palestinians when like this is why you have liberals in the west not understanding oh like why don't they just leave or we should do something to help them leave their home like leave their home that's like you're saying this because they're saying this because they have no actual connection to where they are or who they are. You know what I mean? These are Palestinian people who have lived there here for thousands or hundreds of years in the same villages with the same people. They're just not gonna like where are they where are they gonna go to live in another fucking 
like refugee camp, like they do in like Southern Lebanon, like they do like in Jordan, like this is all ethnic cleansing. You know what I mean? And now the fact that they're calling for a ceasefire, which on paper sounds great, then what? Then what? Are you are we are we guaranteeing a right of return for the Palestinian people, or are we only doing a right of return for like the the Zionists? You know what I mean? Like what's 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 the next steps? You know what I mean? And we talk about, a lot about, and I guess it's well known that again to reiterate what you guys were saying that Israel by and large is the most powerful, most cohesive, best funded military in the Middle East. But a lot of what they function on as well is based on propaganda, right? They Their propaganda machine is just as good as their military, their actual combat machine. And for decades, they've been going off um, using that. And unfortunately, they've been cynically using atrocities against the settlers of, of Israelis to sort of like use that against, you know, use that in favor of what, what they're doing as well, which is why they deploy like TikTokers and influencers like to run their social medias and stuff like that. Like it's all, it's all, it's all bullshit. You know what I mean? And I think there's so much that's wrapped into this that like on the, on the, on the one end, like I'm very hopeful because as we've all seen, like the global response has been heartwarming. Like there's been this incredible like solidarity with the Palestinian people that I don't think we saw, um, after September 11th, because that was pro-Western, pro-war. Um, obviously, none of us were around in the Vietnam War, so we don't know. We weren't there for that. But as much as there's been like pro-Israeli sort of solidarity, I think on the streets, the actual people in the trenches outside demonstrating has been by and large pro-Palestinian. The policymakers are still very pro-Israeli. So like we like we were talking about with um, the, the Malay story like we could we could do whatever but like you'll win a campaign based on 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 vibes and and nothing like you know what i mean so i a couple of points real quick and then i'll throw it over to you rev um Number one, uh, I think, you know, especially with like the the, the kind of TikTok influencer like propaganda thing, I think a lot of that, and this is also connected to why I don't, why their military is just not strong. It's a conscript army. Okay. Yeah. Everybody has military training. Sure. But it's still a conscript army. And if you're, if, if the choice, if, if you were to give me a choice of which army to command, um, on the one side, a conscript army versus an army of people who fucking are fighting for their, like what they see as their lives. I'm going to go with that one as far as like more willing, you know, with a, they'll have a greater willingness to take chances, take risks. They'll, they'll, they, they want to be there in a way a conscript doesn't. Right. And then secondly, um, Earlier, you know, to, to to when you started, Leroy, just now, you know, there's been a – and it's odd. People seem to act or politicians want to pretend when they give speeches that things just sort of happen, right? Yeah. Things just happen, right? Oh, the church just did that. Oh, the mosque <laughs> just did that. The hospital just did that. There was – the blast did it, you know? Or, or you know, oh, why, you know, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they believe that a history – A lot of sentient blasts happening yeah people. oh yeah yeah they they don't seem to believe in not just they don't believe that history exists i guess or or they there's this sense like they act like things just happen to them and it's funny israel and the united states politicians in both countries um again act like oh things just happened to us we've literally done nothing what were we doing we were we were just hanging out on the beach there and then all of a sudden we got attacked to them and and a lot of the propaganda is is 
built upon the idea that history didn't happen, right? That the conflict started a week ago rather like than October 7. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That things just sort of happen rather than being as a result of something, a consequence of something. But with the spread of information, and not to sound like some tech optimist, but I think it's just these narratives just don't work anymore. And we're seeing that in the mass demonstrations happening worldwide. Again, you know, Western Europe and the United States, traditionally strongest allies of of the Israeli state, you're seeing enormous demonstrations here in the States, man. You got like never before in my lifetime, right? Have I seen such solidarity? Uh, I don't know how it is in Australia, if, if it's a similar situation where it's like, never before this size or hundred percent. Yeah. The kind of unity intifada of 2021 was previously the largest mobilization for Palestine I'd seen in Melbourne. Um, But the past Sunday um, before, you know, Israel bombed the Al-Akhli hospital uh, that, you know, was already many multiples larger, tens of thousands of people were marching and there's another march tomorrow and they will be doing rolling demonstrations every Sunday here. I expect after the events of the past week, after the countless atrocities, after our government has thrown their lot in, lit, lit up buildings with the Israeli flag, so on and so forth, and refused to condemn the obvious war crimes, the obvious breaches of international law, the obvious genocidal statements of Israeli military and political officials, you know, like people will come out in even larger numbers tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And sorry, I was like losing my mind before when you're speaking to you, but like what you were saying about the conscript army reminded me of a line from uh, The Godfather. So basically it's when they're hanging out in Havana, it's the middle of the Cuban revolution. Uh, someone says, oh, you know, they blasted that um, that soldier, whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And then um, freaking um, Al Pacino goes and says... Um, but it's funny, but like the the soldiers are paid f- to fight. The other ones aren't. Because what does that tell you? Like th- that the rebels can w- can win. You know what I mean? Because they're, oh, yes, they're putting yes. their life of, you know, because they believe in something. They're not there because they're for a paycheck. You know what I mean? I thought that was um very, very, very interesting. And the thing is, too, it's also exacerbating. Um, it's still exacerbating divisions in Israeli society. Like, you know, the national unity government that they currently have, or like, the, or I guess it's not technically a national unity government; it's an emergency unity. But yeah, a national unity government. Um, it does not include their largest opposition party, right? Um, which again is not really a left wing party. Let's keep that in mind. Um, the uh, matter of fact, uh, one gentleman was expelled from the Knesset recently. Uh, um, the the actual an actual socialist member of the Knesset. Um, uh, but you know, you have segments of Israeli society blaming each other. Like you mentioned earlier, Rev, that Netanyahu, his whole political career, he's been waving the bloody shirt, as we say in the states, right? Where you know his whole claim to fame was like, "I keep you safe. I am the one that keeps Israelis safe." Okay, well, not anymore, um, evidently. Um, so his whole like political identity is kind of like going. His new political identity is going to be forged in this conflict, frankly. Like, and it's it's going to be ugly. It's not going to be a good one. Um, I I wonder what I I fear that in time he'll get his nationalist bump from it, 
you know, um, I think the divisions, you know, wartime has a tendency to, you know, dissolve, you know, healthy divisions in a society. Um, not forever, obviously. Um, you know, case the United States and the Iraq war for, is a great example of that, where there was, you know, fanatical uh, unity behind the government. And then eventually there was opposition to the government over it. Um, I'm, I'm, I fear that the divisions will be, you know, I'm not an expert by any means on on Israeli like domestic politics, even remotely. Um, but I, I just I'm curious about that. No, 100%. And like someone once stated that, um, recently stated that in Israel, what you have is basically right-wing ethno-nationalism versus left-wing ethno-nationalism. So it's still it's still based on like Zionism, which is a settler-colonial ethno-nationalist policy, which um, unfortunately a lot of people are tying to the very concept of Judaism, which is, it makes me sick because those those things are not the same exact thing. Um, and it leads me to something I've always thought about that it's very it's very wild to me that people think that United States and Western governments, especially European governments, actually fundamentally care about like Jewish populations because never in the past have have they ever. You know what I mean? For me, like this is a it's Israel's a very cynical way of justifying having a white presence, a buffer state in the Middle East for resource extraction. Like it's, I think they even said it as much that Israel was meant to be a European outpost in the Middle East. And that's exactly what we're saying, which is why no matter what, the United States is going to back Israel because that's where their interests lie, which is why also they were sort of um, negotiating a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the Gulf states and all that bullshit. You know what I mean? So. I, you know, I think it bears repeating too that like, at least in the United States, like, Jewish socialists and communists and anarchists have been at the fucking, like they've been fucking hitting them streets, man. Like they are such a powerful presence in the United States, a powerful prophetic witness. And I use that word very deliberately, a prophetic witness against the atrocities of the Israeli state. Right. Um, You know, it's, and I think, you know, Something that so my partner is a researches the far right, okay, in the United States, um, and she's been doing that work for many years. And you know, we were talking about this, and she's noticed among actual anti-Semites in the United States using kind of this conflict in multiple ways, right? So you know, on the one end, they're like, "Oh, yay, dead Israelis means dead Jewish people," or then they'll say, "Oh, well, you see, they they run society, this, that, and the other." And she's she's noticing the kind of propaganda victories that this conflict and this idea, this conflation of uh, Judaism and the kind of like sort of Zionistic sort of nationalism that this uh, uh, you know that's, that it's based on um, that this conflation is, is gives gives uh, is 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 a propaganda victory to the far right here at least in the united states i'm sure worldwide which is why i think our answer for that honestly is to again remember history things don't just happen there's a context right the the these uh the people of the uh, of the former ottoman empire who were divided up you know again originally divided up by who british and french imperialists right so after world war 2 right 
what would be the perspective of these kind of of these anti-colonial, anti-imperialist? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, I know there's there's many more people than just Arabs in the Middle East. Um, the various ethnic groups in the Middle East, they didn't see this as like a Jewish power, right? Because Jews had been living in that region for centuries. Yeah. There were already Jewish people in what is today called Israel, what is Palestine, right? They saw this as just a, another example of, of, of Western imperialism. This was India, Pakistan all over again. This was Ireland, Northern Ireland all over again. This was just the British on their way out shitting the bed, right? Intentionally, think, you know, knowing or, you know, they're, it's the British pulling the fire alarm as they leave the building, right? Just uh, really quickly on that. Um, it, it's totally true, of course. Um, there's a long Jewish history in the region. Um, and unfortunately, the history since Zionist colonization has significantly distorted that old history. But I'd encourage people to look at just what's out there. You know, at the Library of Congress in the United States has amazing photographs prior to um, colonization of Palestine that show Jewish people celebrating uh, Passover feast. Um, and actually, you know, there's a huge crowd of Palestinian Arab Muslims, Christians, and Ottoman Turks uh, who are there celebrating with them together. And there's actually amazing photos of Greek Orthodox Christian uh, rituals having a mass audience of all the other kind of citizens um, in the area at the time doing their kind of official religious ceremony while everyone else watches and actually participates in celebrating the beautiful cultural diversity that existed in Palestine. Uh, and I think that's the future that anyone who is pro-Palestine wants, you know, that we want to revive the history of the region, which was one of actually cosmopolitanism, yeah. of tolerance, of fraternity, and all, all that needs to happen for that to be the case is for the Western imperialists to be expelled and for Palestinians to achieve their righteous just cause of freedom and equality in their own homeland. That means, you know, something that Leroy pointed out earlier, which is the right of the millions of Palestinian refugees scattered to the winds of the world to return to their homeland and live side by side with Jewish people. <laughs> and, and that's what we want to see, right? You know, to your to your example, like, you know, this kind of I didn't know about the shared rituals, but I, you know, I, I am a, a Christian myself, right? A, a Catholic. Um, and there used to, you know, there are in <laughs> there are churches in um, in that region that have places for Muslims to do their own prayers. Right. There are places there are churches that have. Interestingly enough, it's a lot of the Marian church. So the church is dedicated to the to the Blessed Mother, to, to the Virgin Mary, right? Yeah. That have <laughs> spots in the churches for Muslims to pray, right? In the church. Again, this predates all of this. Things that are unthinkable today were was just daily life. Now it's not to, you know, we're not gonna we're not trying to paint it like a rosy picture, like it was like there was a utopia and there was no there were never any issues. Absolutely. Of course not. You know, there was, there's been problems, right? But the, but when fucking empire builders from, from Western Europe and North America come in, they fuck everything up. The Brits built their empire 
on ethnic and sectarian division. That's how they managed populations, right? They would, they would, this is how they, you know, there's a reason why I think like the traditional Sikh homeland in India is split into two, right? There's a reason why part of it is in India and part of it is in Pakistan, right? They, 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 this, this was their, that's how they managed their empire. And as, as societies, especially post-World War II, kind of transitioned away from kind of the explicit colonialism to a a more, you know, to less colonial, more like imperialistic, using these terms in, in kind of their Marxist scientific sort of way, right, as, as different things, um, though similar. Um, I think, you know, the, it kind of, it, it created, it exasperated the divisions that, that were there. Yeah, it was, you know, nothing, nowhere has been perfect. We're not in utopia yet, but... You know, it was certainly better than this. It was certainly better than fucking jets bombing, you know, thousand year old mosques and churches. Like, you know, I, I when I saw the the images of that of the church, um, the Orthodox church that was recently bombed, I, you know, I, I didn't know much about it. Um, I looked I was looking into it and it's I mean, it's it's well known now. It's been a religious site since the fifth century. So when you know, Americans, especially and British people, like when your ancestors were worshiping tree stumps, <laughs> their ancestors were getting baptized by the apostles. Right. And you call yourselves a Christian or whatever. Right. I don't usually like to get like explicitly talking about religion on the show all that much. But like that really it it frustrates me to no end that the, the, the descendants of the first disciples of Christ. Right. Are are exiled from their, from their home, that, that they, they face constant and repeated insults, you know, the, to, you know, to just practice their faith, right? Uh, that they're, again, a worship site that's 1500 years old was fucked up, right? Who knows what, like, you know, leaving aside, you know, I'm going to appeal to the crass American perspective of money, right? So I know you don't care about human life. What about like the, the, the fact that these are, these are ancient structures. Like this has this, you know, the first thing that it reminded me of when I heard about the mosque getting destroyed and the church getting destroyed was I thought about those Buddhas in Afghanistan, yeah. right? Uh, 20 years ago, the Bamiyan Buddhas that were, were obliterated uh, because of another group of religious fanatics. Um, and I just, I, I, it's very frustrating to me, especially because in the United States, evangelical Christians are, are among the most vociferous supporters of the Israeli state, much more so than the Jewish population in the United States, right? Um, they, and for their own kind of apocalyptic yeah. imaginations, right? These, again, these Palestinians are supposedly your co-religionists, right? You're supposedly in the same religion, allegedly, and yet you don't seem to give a fuck that, again, these ancient sites of worship are being destroyed, you know, it, it's it's just very frustrating to to see this, and it, I I it's 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 nauseating. It's it's really it's really sad. They these people were these grandmas and these these babies were just they were going to places to houses of worship, places where they wanted to feel safe, places where they felt closer to God and to their community, looking for some form of salvation, and yet that's where they meet their doom. You know, it's it's truly sickening. No, 100 percent. And my only pushback to you on that is um, 
the bombing of churches just plays into what the dominionists believe that we're in the end times. You know what I mean? Like, look, our churches are being bombed. You know what I mean? I know that was, that wasn't your point, but like, that's just as an aside, you know what I mean? Um, and I think when we talk about imperialism, especially in the region, I think we can, would be remiss if we didn't talk about like how Orientalism has sort of undergirded imperialism historically, like going back to like the Romans, going back to the Crusades and all that stuff. So it isn't, isn't a surprise that we don't know we're not talking about Palestinian Muslims, we're not talking about Palestinian Christians or Arab Muslims generally, or Arab Christian um Arab Muslims and Arab Christians, because at the end of the day, they're all Arab, they're all like Orientals, they're all from over there. Whereas I guess the United States and the Western powers can can there's this plausible deniability with the Zionists that said oh, they're they're European, they look more like like you and I, you know what I mean? It's partly why um for for all the bullshit with Putin in Russia, whatever, why like the animosity towards Russia is as amplified as it is. Um, I'm in no way like giving him a pass or whatever. It's 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 a large reason why, you know, the Soviet Union and communism generally was seen how it was. Because once upon a time, the people who became the future Zionists were seen as part of this Oriental sort of group of people. But now because, you know, interests have sort of shifted this is this is where we're at now i'm glad you brought that up. i brought the mentioned russia because it reminds me of uh, president joe brandon's speech last night which was i honestly i found it fascinating right uh i was telling you fellas early you know before we got on that like if i was talking to like a baby socialist that was like you know first learning about imperialism and colonialism and the differences between the two. And I would honestly sit them down in front of that speech. I mean, like that, that speech kind of lays out what imperialism is, right. Or, or like give you an idea of it, especially when he tied, uh, def- like factory jobs in the United States to the war machine. Right. And it kind of goes to show how, cause he's right. You know, th- it is true that there are, you know, Take Virginia, where I'm from, the state of Virginia. Our economy is almost entirely wrapped up in the enormous naval base we have on the coast, right? It's the in Norfolk. Um, they, uh, it's an enormous base, employs you know thousands of people. Without government, like the war machine installations in our state, our economy would wouldn't exist. Like we'd be like a a low kind of low end agricultural state, maybe. Um, we don't really have industry like that, like uh, the Midwest. Um, but I, I thought it was fascinating how explicitly he tied the war machine to to jobs, to to uh, as you put it, a workerist sort of uh, uh, position that you know, good pay, you know, this this you know, supporting our allies uh, allow you know is also supporting good paying jobs. Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I think everything you guys have been saying is very salient but one thing i think people haven't focused on enough is how explicit genocide joe which is what i'm going to be calling him from now on um, and that's not my opinion that's the opinion of more than 800 scholars of genocide um, and including israeli scholar uh, raz siegel who describes what's happening in palestine with the full support materially militarily politically morally of the united states of america um, you know, you know, embodied by Joe Biden uh, as a textbook case of genocide. Um, 
So I, I will be calling him Genocide Joe. Uh, I think, you know, he has done everything he can to make this as dangerous as possible, um, not just for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, who are the main victims here, but to Israel itself and the broader Middle East and therefore the world. Every single decision he has made to give carte blanche to Israel's genocidal offensive to you know, cover for the ongoing war crimes, the nature of what's going on, uh, and you know, essentially put no military limits on their goals in Gaza. What that does is it makes it so likely, highly likely, that other regional actors have to get involved, not because they want to, but because they support Hamas and Hamas is based in Gaza. And if Gaza is ethnically cleansed and liquidated, as the Israeli state is explicitly stating is its goal under the guise of eliminating Hamas, uh, which I'm sure they want to do, but you know they've, they've essentially said all collateral is acceptable and we, 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 we want to tie this up to an overall ethnic cleansing campaign. Yeah. Um, what that does is it means that Hezbollah in Lebanon and Iran, you know, very nearby, need to actually get involved to maintain a level of credible threat, to yeah. maintain a level of competition with Israel and with the Western kind of imperial bloc in their region. And, you know, th these kind of powers like Iran, you know, Turkey, so on and so forth, they are regional imperial players themselves uh, who, you know, alongside Russia meddle in other countries like Syria, so on and so forth, right? So it, it's so dangerous what's happening right now. I think everything Biden said last night shows he is very clear about what he's doing. It's not an oopsie. It's not a mistake. The fact that he made that appeal to say that the wartime economy benefits the working class in the US, everyone needs to support this, everyone needs to rally behind the war machine in Israel and Ukraine, which is tying together now, says he is preparing for a long world war. That is what he is preparing. God, Lord have mercy, yeah. I swear. Yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah. It's yeah. the Bella Poke. Like we're in the it's it's that's what it that's what it is. We're we're in the build up to to something horrifying. And I mean it's already horrifying. I, I don't mean to say it's going towards it, but like you're you're absolutely right, brother. Like fuck, man. <laughs> fuck. No, a hundred percent. I will say Go he ahead, finished Leroy. his speech. He finished his speech with, you know, may God bless our troops, you know, American troops, boots right. on the ground. There are already 2,000 Marines at least assisting Israel's genocidal offensive right now. They sent the largest military carrier in the world to sit off the shore of an open air concentration camp in Gaza. They are preparing for a regional conflict, a regional war. Yeah, 100%. And I think, um, going to your point about calling him um, genocide joe just to be very clear what he is i think and one thing i've always advocated for has been to be very precise with our language like i'm i have to push back on people that call this like the israeli hamas war or, like say war because this isn't a war because a war a war suggests a certain level of ostensible like parody there this is not a war this is an occupying power liquidating another this is an occupation. This is genocide. This is sort of colonialism. The ensuing like reaction to all this that you just detailed, that'll be a war because these, re these, these are military powers that will be able to actually defend themselves, you know, attack on, on, a, on a certain level of parity with, with, with Israel. 
Um, I'm also loving, I guess, kind of switch gears. I'm also loving the all the liberals in the U.S. because I think someone came out and said that like um, there's going to be a massive, massive demographic of Arabs, particularly in Michigan in the Midwest, that are just going to set out the next election because they're either going to vote for Trump or Biden. They're not going to support a genocide. And people are like, oh, you know, this is a vote for Trump because you like it's it'll be a vote for the guy who instilled like a, a Muslim ban. So. Like on 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 that level, to me, like these liberals are admitting, like, yeah, this is a genocide. But do you want a Muslim ban on top of that as well? Like, do you fucking hear yourselves? Like, like, like what's what's? Been, I think yeah, go ahead. I think they're just so rotted by like by party politics, like by like establishment party politics that you really like. We just cannot even fucking like. <clears throat> consider them like you see of course what a friend of the show richie torres um Who's talk, apparently you know, crypto bro apparently i just learned as well he's what a crypto bro yeah yeah he's he's been running his fucking mouth um anyway the, these people can't you know i and i was yeah and i'm sorry i was looking at polling right um and uh you know, the polls go back and forth and I'm very distrustful of polls. So I've been, I think the way to measure this so far and as we go on is the strength of the resistance in Gaza first and West and all the occupied areas. That's the first metric, right? Is the, the degree of the resistance and their level of strength. And then the degree of the, uh, the strength of the Palestinian solidarity movement that is growing worldwide, right? Um, and then the actions and divisions within the ruling class, right? So you have State Department officials starting to defect now in the United States. Yeah. You have European diplomats saying there was a Financial Times article uh, recently talking about like, we have burned through all of our good. We were trying to build a consensus on Ukraine and Russia. We've burned through it all like that goodwill because of, you know, the, you know, one diplomat said that he, uh, they they went to they were in a room with some representatives from the what they in there where they were saying the third world the developing world you know the global south they read off a statement about uh, Ukraine Russia and their counterparts from the global south read the same exact statement just with the different countries in there and just like would stare them down right so you have European diplomats who are talking to the press like this anonymously sure but still talking you have state department officials defecting you do have for the first time politicians in the united states and uh, and i know divisions in england in the uk are really really intense right now there's been big shakeups in the labor party controversies there with count labor party councillors city councillors like defying the national leadership of the labor party there um so rather than polling the strength of the resistance is the thing to watch for, right? In Pal in the occupied territories. Number two is the strength of the of the solidarity movement, right? And three, if we see more divisions in the ruling class, don't we can't get hung up on polling or any of that stuff. We need to see the real movement of peoples, right? That is what that is the motor of fucking history. We know this. We can quote chapter and verse, right? That the people are the motor of history, right? The organized working people, right? And you know, like, not yeah, to get sentimental. Marks over here, right? Well, not not to get sentimental, but like the working class, right? We're one big fucking family, right? Worldwide, we are one big fucking family, right? Those are our brothers and and and, and sisters and siblings. Those are our siblings in fucking Palestine right now. Those are our siblings in 
Latin America. Those are our siblings in the uh, indigenous territories in Australia. We're all family, right? And if one of you know one one of my family hurts, we all hurt, and we have to fight for them. Yeah, we're going kind of long here, so we'll wrap it up soon. But like, it's it goes back yeah. to one thing that we used to talk about T on the on the podcast that anytime we talk about like the Puerto Rican collaborationists, like the the Comprador class in Puerto Rico, that as as a as a colonially oppressed nation of people, we have more in common with a Palestinian than we will ever with the bourgeoisie of the United States. You know what I mean? They seem to think not, but we as a as a as a colonized nation of people colonized by the United States, we have more in common with the children being slaughtered in Palestine, with the the dude working in a fucking like factory in like wherever the fuck than will ever with the bourgeoisie in the global north. You know what I mean? Really quick, it's funny you mentioned like about Puerto Rico, right? I, I I wish I had the exact quote. I don't have it with me right now, but there was like some official who said that, you know, eventually we can make Gaza our Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that, and that was very interesting language I found. And he said that in August, so even before all of this. And that was his uh-huh. proposal of like his his idea for peace, how we can peacefully move forward, is to instill a colo- like colonial relationship, you know what I mean? Um, well, they see condos. They see condos. They don't yeah. see corpses. Yeah. They don't see corpses. They yeah. see condos. They see new beach rental properties that they yeah. can they can rent out. Sorry. And like I said, you, we're going long. I'm sorry, Leroy, yeah. for interrupting. But I, you mentioning Puerto Rico maybe reminded me of that of that very interesting line, uh, turning it into into Israel's Puerto Rico. No, 100. percent all good. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess we'll wrap it up there. I mean, we could go on here. F- fucking days talking about this shit and on the note of puerto rico as puerto ricans as puerto rican communists as you know coming from this colonized nation of people a nation that we love dearly because it's part of who we are our solidarity will always be with the globally oppressed particularly with the palestinian people and that's something that we've never waffled on here on the show as you know you know as, as, as people who are into this, like we've always said that like our liberation as Puerto Ricans will, will, will always be incomplete until the Palestinian people are free. Like we, we, we achieve independence. We achieve a socialist independent Puerto Rico. That's not going to be enough until the Palestinian people are free. Because again, like you said, we're one big family of a, of a, of a press nations internationally. Um, before we go, anyone have any last words? Just really quickly, I'll finish off by saying, I think the events of the past two weeks has really validated what socialists have been saying about Palestine and the Palestinian struggle in particular, because you've seen the mass protests in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, including, you know, obviously um, the West, which we've already mentioned, but those protests are happening against US client dictatorships, military military dictatorships like the Sisi regime in Egypt, um, where today masses of Egyptians retook Tahir Square, the site of the Egyptian revolution for the first time in years, uh, in defiance of the government, which tried to organize from the top down the solidarity rallies with the Palestinians. You've seen people in both Jordan and Egypt marching to the border. And those rallies are full of people of all different faiths, all different ethnic backgrounds, so on and so forth. It can liquidate the sectarianism that you guys actually talked about all throughout this episode that was instilled by the West in the region because everyone sees this as the main reason why the Middle East is in the state that it's in today. 
imperialism, colonialism, racism, and they want to appro- they want to unite and they want to fight to oppose that. One thousand percent. Well said. Well said. Well yeah. said. And I think on that note, we'll put a bow on it. Um, again, thanks for tuning in. Um, big topic, a lot to talk about, but I think we've been clear with where our um, solidarity lies, and that's something we'll never waver on. Um, with that said, peace, y'all. Hasta la victoria. Later, y'all. Thanks for having me on, guys. Mi gente, thank you for listening to this edition of Machete Mate. If you support what we do, consider showing your solidarity at patreon.com slash machete mate. You'll be helping us out by allowing us to put out more and better content while also getting access to our Discord community or more casual and personal After Dark episodes and any other projects we might have down the road. If not, we still love you, so show us some love with a good rating review on whatever platform you spend time with us. And as always, hasta la victoria.